God, we now, as our students are going to be teaching, being learning in their classrooms, we know that we as well are now opening our minds and our hearts to learn from your word together. And we pray that you would help us, God, to understand more about who you are in this time that we now commit to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So today's study, although it is kind of the title is the presence of God with us in all things, we are going to be really studying what God's love for means, love for us means practically. It's the word that Paul uses in the scripture we just heard read in Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And I think that that word love in our culture actually kind of just washes over us a lot of the time. When you hear God loves you, when someone says that, does it really sort of take root in you or does it sort of wash over you? Like, yeah, I know that. And, or are we really able to understand what that means? So we're going to sort of try to grasp a little bit of what that means today. Because I think we'll find for most of us, even when uh, someone says, I love you to you, that's not the crux of what you're really, ex- how you experience love. I think when we're... S- What we're really searching for as we seek to be people who are loved, I think it's a desire every person has, we're made for this love, but what we mean by that is someone who's with us, right? Someone who's on our side, who's for us, who's not against us, ever. Someone who's there when we're at our worst, someone who knows us deeply and actively cares in spite of what they know and because of what they know. And so... Uh, I wanted to, I was thinking about this, and a story came to mind when I felt this really vividly from people in my life. When I was a junior in high school, my youth pastor at church started recruiting kids and youth to go on a summertime mission trip to Haiti. Our church, my Lutheran church growing up, had a sister church in Haiti, a long-term relationship, but they'd never really taken youth They'd only taken adults. Well, this was a chance for the youth in our church to go. And I was one of those kids who loved youth group, all things church. I was pretty much there like five days a week. And so I'm begging my parents to be able to go the moment I hear about this trip. And my parents were understandably pretty nervous. In some ways, my parents were uh, less all about church than I was, actually. And uh, I think at that point, they had never been to a developing country, neither of them. Haiti probably sounded like the other side of the world, but I wore them down uh, along with some help from my youth leaders, and they gave me permission to go. And so then we did, we spent literally a year preparing for this trip. We learned Creole phrases, Creole songs we were going to sing as a team, and our team did a bunch of cross-cultural training. In retrospect, this was really good that we did all this. We fundraised hundreds of dollars. And uh, we got all kinds of shots recommended by the CDC. And finally, we're only a week out from our trip, and we all had to take our first dose of of malaria medicine. Um, Many of you may have taken this for some reason or another. This was the kind you took one pill a week for about six weeks, or a few weeks after your trip. And so we had to take our first dose uh, a week before we were supposed to leave. I took my big pink pill, went to bed. The next morning, I woke up, And I had uh, this weird sound in my ears. They would later diagnose as a ringing in my ears. And by lunchtime, I couldn't actually keep any food down. I was so dizzy anytime I moved my head. So all of this to share that basically there was starting to be a question of whether or not I was going to be able to go on this dream trip that I was so excited about. 
And uh, anyways, by Wednesday, I was in the hospital. I had an IV hooked up to me. And of course, I was a stubborn teenager. I was like, no, I am going. No side effects are going to keep me from this trip. I took Dramamine, actually, to just be able to walk around and like, attend the final meetings that our team had. And my parents, crazy or not, did not want to be the ones to tell me no, I think. And so they said, OK, you seem to be feeling better. Go ahead and get on a plane with your team. And so I did. I got on a plane. I seemed to be doing better. Uh, got, I landed in Florida with my mission team and started feeling sick again. And my um, youth pastor wisely made the call that I probably couldn't continue on to the trip. And so I got on a plane back home. The rest of the team got on a plane to Haiti. Now, I share this story realizing that this is not the worst tragedy you've heard about a, a 16-year-old experiencing or anyone experiencing. Um, but you have to maybe understand that I was a pretty sheltered teenager. And so this was the worst disappointment I'd experienced in my life in so far. Uh, I arrived home. I couldn't talk to anyone. I was so lonely and so sad. And here's the thing, long story to get to the short point, I, here's the thing I remember so vividly. My youth pastor called me three times from a satellite phone in Haiti to talk to me, to tell me about how the trip was going, to tell me that the whole team was showing my picture to almost everyone they encountered and telling my story and saying, she's praying for us even though she's not with us. When the team returned home, they brought me presents, they made sure I stood up in front of the church with all of them and told the story that I wasn't there, but they made sure I felt like part of the team still. People from the church, while the team was gone, flooded my house with cards and calls. And I was a 16-year-old who got sick and couldn't go on a mission trip. I mean, this was not a, a really, yeah, in the big scheme of things, it wasn't a huge deal. And yet, somehow, all of these adults in my life knew that this mattered to me, that I was lonely and sad, and they were with me. I felt so loved still. I remember it so vividly, how loved I felt in those moments. And I think this is what we crave. This is what people, all of us as people, are desiring, that people would be with us when we are in those dark places, experiencing the pain and sorrow with us. And so, we especially, though, are made for that relationship with our God, that God is with us, intimately with us. And this is what Paul is asserting, that God is intimately with us, loves us in that way, no matter what happens. Sometimes I don't know if we experience that God is there, and I think what I'm going to help us understand today, hopefully, is that this is what God was saying when he came 2,000 years ago. I am with you. This is what my love looks like, physically. That God, I would be transformed into a human baby. And I think Paul's trying to show us what it means to be convinced of this hope that God is with us in all things. So today we're actually going to focus on what that means in three different ways, or three characteristics of sort of what God's presence with us means. First, that God's presence is intimate. We'll start there. And then we'll see that God's presence is constant. Nothing, nothing can get between us and, and God's presence with us. And then finally, that God's presence is powerful to act. So that's where we're going today. I'm going to give just a few 
uh, sentences of the context of Romans because we've been in Romans for the last two weeks. We're going to be in Romans today. And so just a couple reminders, you may know this already, but the Apostle Paul is writing this book as a letter to the church in Rome to, one, help make sure they have correct theology, and two, he's never been there yet, so he's writing to Christians he doesn't know, by and large, and then two, to encourage them as they're beginning to face persecution and giving them strength to sort of carry on in this city Rome where they are trying to follow Christ. So that's one thing to know. The second thing to know is just that Paul has experienced most forms of pain and suffering in his life. Short of death, he has experienced more suffering than probably most of us in his life. He's not writing this from a comfortable chair. He's not writing this in a vacuum. So remember that as we study this today. With that in mind, let's start with verse uh, 35 in Romans 8, where we see Paul ask, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And again, that word love of Christ we have a hard, I have a hard time with this word. We use that word so many times, ways in our culture. Uh, I use it with my best friend. Every time we have a conversation, at the end of it, I say, I love you. It's become a little bit rote, but it's just what we say to each other. It's true, but some of its meaning is almost lost because it's such a habit. We use it to differentiate, differentiate things we like and dislike. I love pizza. I don't love broccoli. These are, my, these are the ways I use this word, honestly, all the time. We use it to express admiration. I love Michelle Obama, right? And then, of course, we use it to mean all of the above and more. When we say it to someone we actually are intimate and romantic with. And then we tend to be more careful with the word, right, when in a relationship. So what do we mean when we say that God loves us? And I don't want to spend a ton of time on this. We actually went really in-depth with this word over the summer in Song of Solomon. If you, those sermons are still online if you are interested kind of in this topic. But suffice it to say for this morning, when we talk about the love of God, we're talking about the kind of love that shows up. We're talking about the love that is present, that is with us the kind of love we most desire, the kind that shows up in that darkest hour, that's present when we're at our worst, that understands us and fights for us and protects us. It's that love. So clearing that up. And we're going to start by looking at the story of Luke, from Luke chapter 1. This is the story of Mary. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there. We're going to read the story of what happens when Jesus' arrival is announced to the very first person to know about it, and this is Mary. Starting in verse 28, the angel Gabriel visits a young woman living in a small town and says to her, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words, understandably, and wondered what kind of greeting could this be. But the angel says to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. Mary asks the angel, again, understandably, how will this be? I'm a virgin. And the angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now I know most of us are, again, this is an overfamiliar story if you have been around church for a long time. It sort of rolls, rolls right over us when we hear it. 
But this revelation is so important to understanding God's relationship to us today because we have the same privilege that Mary does. God has told us that when we invite Jesus into our lives, we invite the spirit of the living God to dwell in us. And as the teachers of Bethany were meeting this week, one of them brought up the lyrics to the song we actually just sung, A Little Town of Bethlehem. Because in the final verse, and I actually wasn't in here to know if we sang this verse, so my apologies. In the final verse, we sing, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. It is the same image of what the angel talks to Mary about. And a few lines later, the song finishes, O come to us, abide with us, O our Lord Emmanuel. Jesus talked about us, his followers, as needing to be born again, but the metaphor actually goes both ways because something is being born in us when we are born again. Christ enters in, and we become bearers of the God of the universe inside of us. And some of you might feel a little squeamish about this analogy. Fair enough. I I do. I have never been pregnant. Uh, But Scripture is actually full of this metaphor, especially in Paul's other letters. In Galatians 2, Paul writes, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who is living in me. And even more explicitly in Galatians 4, Paul says to the believers in Galatia, my dear children, I'll be in the pains of childbirth with you until Christ is formed in you, fully formed in you. In other words, I'm having birthing pains because I'm trying to help you bear Christ up in you. The imagery of childbirth and wombs is intimate. It's possibly the most intimate experience of human life. But this, and Mary is the first among us to bear the Son of God within her, but this is what God invites every one of us to experience. And thankfully, not as literally as Mary. And her experience was special. I'm not trying to take away from that. But the intimacy of relationship is the same. When God sends the angel Gabriel to Mary, God is saying to every one of us, I want to be with you. I am with you. In Luke 1, Mary is told the name her child will be given, that he'll be called Jesus, which is the Greek name for Joshua. It means the Lord saves. It's, of course, an apt name for our Messiah. But when the angel appears to Joseph in Matthew 1, which we're also going to look at this morning, He is told two names. He is also told that the child will be called Jesus, but he's told another name as well. And this would be the son, his son's throne name, his kingly name. Today's kings and queens of England, I just found this out from watching The Crown on Netflix, um, today's kings and queens of England actually choose royal names once they take the throne. So they have given names and then they have a throne name. This is what Emmanuel the name that the angel gives is for Jesus. It's his throne name. And it means, of course, God with us. Practically, this means God says, I am willing to be born into your world, to take on your form and shape as a human, to take on all of the sorrow and trouble and suffering you experience in order to show you that I am the God who is with you. But I want us to notice that God doesn't put any conditions on Mary when he gives her this gift. He doesn't say to Mary, if you make sure you don't do anything to mess this up, then you will bear the Son of God. 
And he doesn't say only if you go through with your marriage to Joseph or only if you keep all of God's laws and make sure you don't defile yourself while you're pregnant, you will bear the Son of God. There's no conditions. And this brings us to the second facet of God's presence with us who love him, that it is constant. It is unconditional. And this is the point of Paul's ending in Romans chapter 8. I think some of, these are some of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture to me, in, at least in the comforting sense. But I want to unpack what he says a little bit because it's meant to do more than just comfort us. He's writing this to give the Roman church tremendous courage in what they're about to face, persecution, tremendous suffering. As we bear Christ in this world, we face suffering. It's not just a potential, actually. It's a promise. In John chapter 16, Jesus says kind of in no uncertain terms, in this world, you will have trouble. His next sentence is full of hope. He says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. But, and this is Paul's point exactly, that nothing, nothing, not life, not death, not sickness or pain or poverty or prison or anything can change the fact that we carry the God of the universe with us in this world. That our God is with us and for us, and not even our own sin, not our mistakes, not anything we do can change that. The ghost family read for us today also out of John 1. I know there are several scriptures today. Um, And St. Augustine wrote a book called The City of God, where he quotes a Platonian philosopher, so a philosopher who studied Plato. And this probably non, he wasn't a Christian, but he said, uh, this philosopher who studied Plato, Plato said, the beginning of the Gospel of John ought to be copied in letters of gold and inscribed or placed in the most conspicuous place in every church. It's bold words. The beginning of the Gospel of John ought to be copied in letters of gold. And I, having studied some of John 1 this week, think that might be true. It is a powerful, these are powerful verses for us as a church. Because the first five verses I could have written a whole sermon on, for one. I'm kind of reeling myself in. John is establishing that Jesus, the one who was born here 2,000 years ago, is the same essential person as the the one, the word, who was with God at the beginning of creation, who was God at the beginning of creation. It's a foundational belief for us as a church, right? And then the next verses remind us who we are, that we are human beings who have life only because of Jesus, that our God is the light and the spark of every person in the whole human race. And that when we are in union with our God, when we're in relationship with him, there is life. And that word for life is the Greek word zoe, right? It means wholeness and fullness of life. Life in the most beautiful sense. John is saying nothing was made that is apart from God. Everything was made for God. And when we are in relationship with our God, in his light, if you will, we experience Zoe, fullness of life. But of course, none of us, none of us are fully experiencing that. We are none of us fully in his light with no darkness. We still see darkness around us and and in us. Some of us in our world are facing away from this light altogether, and all we see are maybe shadows of it. 
shafts of it. Don't even know where it comes from. But what John says next is what's so hopeful. He says, the light of Christ shines in the darkness, and what? The darkness has not overcome it. Past tense, has not overcome it. In fact, at the very beginning of John, John is already pointing us to where Jesus rises from the grave and defeats death. It has not overcome it. It will be there. That light will be there if we look, and the more we seek, the more we'll find. And with that light, we'll find this abundant life, this Zoe that John talks about. I've been thinking this theme of darkness and light has always been really powerful for me because I have actually always been a little afraid of the dark. Even as a young kid, I was the like monsters under the bed type of kid who needed a nightlight on. And we were on our church camp out just this past August with many of you. And uh, we were up at Camp Casey. I was, found myself up pretty late Saturday night. Most of you had gone to bed who were there. And uh, Matt had just left a few minutes ago because he had needed, needed to get back to Seattle. And I was like, man, it's so starry out. I never get to go and just see the stars. And so I got my headlamp on, which was dying, and thought, I don't need that anyways. I mean, who, who stargazes with a headlamp? lit. It doesn't work if you've tried. So I start on my walk just down the road away from camp. I mean, I'm not very far away from where 80 of you or 120 of you or however many of you were sleeping. But I don't get very far, and I start to realize the wind is howling, and there are all kinds of noises around me. Yep. And I'm trying to be really spiritual and enjoy the moment and pray, and all I can think is something is in the bushes, and it's going to get me. And the trees were, yeah, blowing, and I'm like, there's got to be an animal in these woods. Anyways, it was so dark, and I don't experience much darkness living in the city, right? And I would turn my headlamp on, and it would just barely light up the leaves of the closest bushes. And I just couldn't keep going. And this feels like a failure to me still. I hated that I was that afraid of nothing. I mean, I was probably one of the safest places there are to be wandering in the woods at night. But I turned back and I went to sleep, and the next morning felt really foolish, right, as I walked down the same road and see that there's probably nothing in those bushes. They're not even that thick. But darkness can have a funny way of getting to us, right? It can have a funny way of feeling all-consuming, of clouding our ability to even see. And that's just literal darkness. And I know many of us in this congregation, in this room, have faced dark parts of life, even recently. Death and sickness and mental illness and loneliness. And it can be easy to believe that it is closing in on you. And to wonder where that hope is, where the light is that John says will never go out. And I don't have these answers. Jesus promised that we would see darkness, that we would face trouble, but he also promised that he has, past tense, overcome it, overcome that darkness. And we're living in between that victory over death and darkness and sin and suffering and the promise of what that victory will mean and will look like. And in the meantime, Christ says, I'm with you. I'm present. I'm not leaving no matter what. Practically, that means when we pray, God hears us. 
God is with us, listening. I believe the God of the universe who made us says, I know, I've, I've been there. I have walked in these shoes, and I am walking in these shoes now with you when we go through those times. And I think God says this in prayer when we look to him and speaks to our spirit. But God also gives us, and Jack spoke to this last week as well, people to give this message to us in the flesh. Like the people in my church all those years ago who showed up for a 16-year-old girl who was heartbroken and sad. And God used them powerfully in my life. We are loved, and we know this because God is with us. So I want to now, we're going to turn to our final point. God's presence with us isn't just so that we can feel better. It is not just for comfort. It actually is active and powerful, and it changes the world around us. And we did this a little bit backwards because the final verse in Romans 8 we're going to look at actually comes a little before these verses about how God's love will never fail. The final characteristic that God's presence is powerful comes from Romans 8:28, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, this is a familiar verse, again, to many of us. It's often shortened to God works all things for good or everything works together for good. We repeat this line over and over again in a song we sing often here at Bethany, right? Your love never fails. The bridge is the line, you make all things work together for my good. Sing it over and over again. I want to caution us a little bit with this verse, though, because I think we maybe have overused it. Not that you can overuse a Bible verse. I shouldn't, probably shouldn't say that. But I think we can slap this verse on a card we send to someone who's bereaved. Or we can say it, kind of drop it in a conversation when we're in with someone who's facing a hard time. And think that we're providing comfort and wisdom to a grieving widow and a bereaved mother. And I think maybe many of us who've heard those words said to us in some of those times haven't necessarily found them as helpful or as comforting as we think we should even. And I want to unpack that a little bit before we get into the hope that is in this verse, because there's lots of hope in this verse. I was having coffee a few weeks ago. I didn't ask her, and I don't know if she's here. I won't look. I was having coffee a few weeks ago with a woman from Bethany Northeast. She will remain unnamed. She and her husband had recently signed a lease on a home that they had been praying for for a long time. They have four children they're currently caring for, including two foster children, and they have very little space in their current home. And the lease that they signed on this bigger home that they were really excited about fell through. Unexpectedly, last minute, and the provision they thought had been from God for this new place was no longer there. And what she shared with me is that as she reached out to her community, a lot of people responded, me included, by the way, that I know God has something better for you. There's a better house. This is just because there's something even better for you out there. Now, she was a little sick of it, of hearing that. Maybe you've had this experience. Why? Not because she didn't believe it and not because she didn't want people praying that exact thing for her family. But hearing it when you're grieving and disappointed can feel like someone says, when, when someone says, there's other fish in the sea, when you just ended a really long-term relationship, 
or when someone says, it'll all work out, when they actually don't know how that's going to happen. I think we as human beings, when we're trying to walk with people in those situations, want a quick fix. We don't know what to do with grief, so we try to fix the problem with a Bible verse, with a Pollyanna type of view. And I'm not saying Bible verses aren't comforting. I absolutely believe they are. But I want us to be careful with how we use them. This is not what Paul, Paul is not telling the Roman church. It'll all get better for you. We know God will make our lives perfect if we just keep trusting him. When I told the woman in our church, God will have a better house for you, I actually didn't know that. God doesn't always work the way we think he will sometimes. And so now, it ended up working out in this woman's case, I'll just tell you. <laughs> she was actually laughing about it because she was like, they were right. All, we did get a better house, and it's been amazing. And yet, in the moment, those words weren't comforting. And I'm unpacking what that means. When Paul says, all, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, God is the one who knows what that good is. And we as humans can sometimes pretend we know what that good is. And we don't always. And so this is not Paul saying, everything will just get better. It will, but not necessarily the way we think. And so what we need to hear when we are hurting is that God is with us and that you are with me, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, this can be a helpful, a helpful way to think about this. Right before Jesus is arrested, Jesus' disciples think they know the quick fix. Jesus, you're about to get arrested. Obviously, we should fight these soldiers, and then you won't get arrested. And Peter picks up a sword, right, and starts to fight, and he must be pretty good with the sword because he cuts a guy's ear off. And Jesus says, no, this is not what God has for us, for me. The way the Father God will work this for good may not even be totally clear to Jesus in this moment. Now, we don't know all of what Jesus knew as a human being when he walked this earth, but Jesus knows this is not the quick fix. He knows that suffering is going to be involved. And then God will make good out of it. And we have hindsight. We can see how that worked in his time. So hopefully we've cleared up maybe what this verse doesn't mean. But what it does mean is still incredibly hopeful. What it does mean is that our God has the power to redeem everything, to make darkness into light, to transform it even, to make even the worst events in our history as a world, as a world and in our personal lives the worst events bend towards his story of redemption and beauty and goodness. Uh, I know I'm running out of time. Isaiah 44 was also read today. I just want to touch on this. It's not a traditional Christmas passage to be read. It was uh, read earlier today. As, and in the passage, in verse 24, God speaks to the people of Israel and starts by reminding them of who he is. He says, I am the Lord. I stretched out the heavens and I spread out the earth. I do what I say I will do. I fulfill every word my prophets have spoken. And then God goes on to say, through Isaiah, I will rebuild Jerusalem and restore the towns of her people. I will make even the king of the land do my bidding. 
His word will not return void, in other words. He will make good on every promise he's made. Our God will bring all things to work for our good. And if God lives inside of us, our God is powerful enough to use us to do this work as well. Just as God empowered his son, Jesus, to carry out his will, even through the worst kind of suffering, we are empowered by the Spirit to the same end. I think we have more power in us, in Christ, than most of us realize, or any of us realize. I'm going to close with one of my favorite stories this time of year in Advent. Uh, it's not the story of Mary or the shepherds or the wise men. It's the story of Joseph as he learns about what has happened to his fiance. This is the story of Jesus' birth told in the very first gospel, the gospel of Matthew, really kind of tells it from Joseph's perspective. And I'm going to paraphrase it because it is another familiar story. If you want to, though, read what is really written in your text, I encourage you to turn to Matthew 1. We'll start in verse 18. In this passage, we learn there's a woman named Mary engaged to a man named Joseph, kind of like our own Becca is engaged to a man named Joseph. I'll just call you up. But before they got married, some people found out she was already pregnant in the town. And not only that she was already pregnant, but that she's claiming that it was supernatural, that she was pregnant by God's hand. And it helps to understand in this story that uh, Joseph and Mary probably didn't know each other as well as Joseph and Becca know each other. They probably, uh, they were never going to be allowed to be in this alone together before their wedding. And so uh, the people in the town decide they probably should tell Joseph what they've learned. And they go and they tell him what they have found out. And Joseph was a godly man. He didn't want to cause Mary more shame than she was already experiencing, not only because of her pregnancy, but also because of some of the claims she's making about her pregnancy. So instead of publicly shaming her and filing for divorce, he decides to send her away quietly. Maybe she could go live in the country with an aunt or something. I imagine he's thinking. But one night, after he decided this, He's sleeping, an angel comes to him, and the angel says, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. She's been telling the truth. The child inside her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And what's more, that child is the Messiah. He will be the one to save the people from their sin. Now you can imagine Joseph's mind's probably blown. But Joseph wakes up, and he does exactly what God asks him to. He takes Mary as his wife. He doesn't consummate the marriage until Jesus is born. This is a big leap Joseph takes. And the reason I want to bring this story up is because they, these are the very first people to encounter Jesus in the flesh, right? To experience the wonder of the presence of God in this way. And Jesus' entrance into the world causes problems. It is not clean and tidy. An unwed mother in Jewish culture was taboo in more ways than I could mention today. Mary's reputation, not only hers, but her whole family's, would have been destroyed. Joseph, by staying with her, probably experienced shame in his village as well. Because clearly people found out what Mary was claiming. Yet God comes to Joseph and he receives the strength and courage he needs to step into this story to father and raise a son that would become the Messiah. The angel tells Mary 
in the same interaction in Luke 1, God is with you. You don't need to be afraid. And she has the strength to not only carry this baby to term, but not very long after he's born, to go with Joseph and become refugees in another country. Because shortly after Jesus is born, Herod decides to go on a killing spree and kill babies in Bethlehem and surrounding towns. There's pain even as Jesus arrives into the world. There's darkness and loneliness. All of this happens as Jesus enters the world. But God says, I'm working. I'm working in all things, even this. And now, as I mentioned, we can see, we have the benefit of hindsight to see God's hand in that story. But we can't always see it in our own. And that's part of our humanness. We have a very limited view, a microcosmic view compared to the God of the cosmos and the view that he holds. And so we rest in knowing that our God is working in ways we can see and ways we can't see. And that nothing, we are convinced that nothing can separate us from the love God has for us. And we know that that love is not in vain. It's active and it's at work. It's redeeming broken things and it's lighting dark places. As we close this morning, I invite you to reflect on where in your life you need to see God light up the darkness. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Where do you need to see God at work? And, and then give that to God as you, as you stand in worship. I'm convinced that God will show up in that place you ask him to. And that there's nothing too dark, there's nothing too broken that God can't touch. I'm going to invite you to stand as I pray for us. And we'll worship. God, we humbly come before you. We thank you that, God, you have overcome the darkness. And, God, we wait in expectation of what that will look like when this world is flooded with light and life that is abundant and full. And we ask that we would be faithful in the waiting and that we would bear your hope to this world you placed us in. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.